our primary focus uh, in our time in the Word is on the book of James. And James, uh, as we studied, of course, really, uh, if you could summarize its focus, is how to live out the Christian life in a wise fashion. The emphasis is wisdom. It's truth put into practice. What does it look like to actually be a follower of Christ? And so it's been a wonderful study. And even um, Hans' emphasis the last two weeks, looking at the book of Philemon, uh, was a wonderful example and testimony of what authentic Christianity looks like as it's lived out. And as we have in our hearts a desire to honor Christ, and we have in our hearts a desire to see those in our lives, it might be a spouse, it might be uh, uh, children, family members, friends, co-workers, who claim the name of Christ, we want to see them excel in their own walks with Christ, to live a wise Christian life. But I don't know about you, a lot of times when I go to prayer, and I begin to think about how I want to grow spiritually and how I want people in my life to grow spiritually, I find my prayer life is often characterized by a list of very specific requests that often are dealing with their behavior. God, could you help them change in this regard? Could you provide this for them to to meet this need and fix uh, this area of struggle in their life or whatever it might be? And often our prayers are focused more on the symptoms and the behaviors than the heart and and the real motivation of what should inform those behaviors. And with that thought in mind, I thought we'd be encouraged uh, this week and next week to consider the work that God does in the heart and our prayer lives. And I want this morning and next week to focus on two prayers of the Apostle Paul. Think about Paul and who he was. Paul, who was appointed as the Apostle to the Gentiles, was entrusted to take the gospel message to the nations, there representing the early church. And we're acquainted, of course, with his missionary journeys and the churches that he planted and the men he discipled and so forth. But it's often um, the case that when we study Paul's ministry and read his epistles, we find something very different in his prayers than what you might expect. It's not a long list of requests to fix those people or to change this circumstance. It's often a prayer that flows from a pastor's heart a man who loves the people who've come to faith in Christ, those that are in his life that he, he desires for them to grow spiritually, his prayer often is, is focused on the power of God at work in that individual's life. And his prayers are appealing to God to accomplish that power in their life. And as we look at these two prayers over the next two weeks, I want to challenge you specifically, as I challenge myself, to consider our prayer life. Maybe we're just praying about the symptoms. We're just praying about the surface effects. And we can learn from Paul how he prayed. Somebody probably more passionate and committed and uh, convicted about spiritual growth than you and I might possibly be. And what characterized his prayers for those he loved? And I hope that we'll take away the next two weeks a challenge in our own prayer life to pray like the Apostle Paul. And really, when you look at all the ministry and the effects that he had, I believe that we could attribute his commitment to prayer and prayer in this fashion for the fruit that was a result of his ministry. As a matter of fact, Ian Bounds, who's written much on prayer, makes this comment about the Apostle Paul. He says this, Paul was a leader by appointment and by universal recognition and acceptance. He had many mighty forces in his ministry. His conversion, so conspicuous and radical, was a great force, a perfect magazine of aggressive and defensive warfare. His call to apostleship was clear, luminous, and convincing. But these forces were not the divinest energies which brought forth the largest results to his ministry. Paul's course was more distinctly shaped, and his career rendered more powerfully successful by prayer than by any other force. Now, you might be challenged in how you pray as a result of our study these two weeks, but you also might be challenged to pray. One of the tendencies we have in our Christian lives is we focus on our own abilities to try to persuade individuals to grow in Christ. We try to convince them, or we try to guilt them, or we try to confront them, or whatever it might be, and certainly we have a responsibility biblically to encourage and exhort one another But I would confess to you, probably the area that I am least characterized by, certainly in regard to comparison to Paul, is faithfulness in prayer. 
for God to be at work in the hearts of those that I love. And so I hope this will be a challenge not only to how we pray, but a challenge to prayer itself. And so I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians with me. As I thought about focusing on the prayers of Paul in our time together, I was reminded uh, back in high school, I was challenged by my youth pastor. His name was Mike Newman, and, and Mike was teaching a bunch of us young high school students on prayer. And he said, I want to give you a challenge. He said, I'm going to challenge you sometime this week to pray for an entire hour. I was like, whoa, an entire hour? I didn't really ever consider that, nor think that was possible or even necessary. But we all, you know, because it was a group momentum there, we all committed to pray for one hour uh, one day that week. And I remember as I went to prayer, struggling in that time, after the first 10 minutes, I had depleted my list of prayer requests for everything I could think of that people would need in my life. And yet, wanting to honor my commitment to Mike, I stayed on my knees and just continued to contemplate who God is and what he's done. And I I found very quickly my prayer shifted from requests for needs to words of thanksgiving, words of prayer, words of gratitude, not just for what God had done for me, but who God was. As we come to look at our text, we'll see that evidence very much in Paul's prayer. He's more mindful of who God is and what he does than the requests that he wants to make, the specific needs that have to be addressed in the lives of people. And we'll see that in this prayer. Read with me uh, verses 15 through 18. Excuse me, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 18. We read this. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Pray with me as we look at this text. (laughs) Father, we come to your word this morning with an expectation that what we learn will aid us in our own pursuit of the Christian life to live a life of wisdom and not only ourselves, but those that we love and and to play a role in uh, the work that you have intended in their own life to honor Christ. And we ask that you would aid us now as we look at the example of Paul as he prays for the, the church in Ephesus, that we would learn how you would want us to follow his example. And may we find the power uh, in prayer for our own lives and the lives of others that gives you the glory for who you are and what only you can accomplish. And as a result, draw us back to worship you with hearts filled with wonder and appreciation, hearts full of thanksgiving and hope and a greater faith in you. So guide us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when we talk about the book of Ephesians, just a little bit of context, first of all. Paul had pastored this church for three years, so he knew these people well. He knew their testimony of faith. He knew how they had come to understand Christ as their Lord and Savior, and he played a key role in that. So he loved them from a, uh, not just a secondhand perspective of, of information as to their testimony, but from a firsthand knowledge. He had been present with many of them when they had actually committed their lives to Christ. After he left, though, there were those who raised up in the church and began to uh, teach heresy. And these heresies were trying to persuade the people in the church to think that they had to have a higher or deeper knowledge. And they began to to teach, according to 1 Timothy, uh, where Paul writes to him to confront these issues, He says uh, that they are caught up with myths and genealogies and these kinds of things, 
with the expectation that something in addition to the word of God could be added to their knowledge. Paul wants to correct that faulty heresy. And what he does in the first chapter is he begins to rehearse everything that God has done on their behalf. It's a powerful chapter. You've heard many sermons on it, I know. Theologians point to this chapter and they look at it as probably one of the most concise and in-depth treatment of the doctrine of soteriology and all that God accomplishes on behalf of believers. And Paul so clearly and effectively unpacks that here in chapter 1 in verses uh, 3 through verses 14. And so that's the immediate context uh, in which we find Paul's prayer. Now, if you look at the entire book of Ephesians, you'll see that eventually by the time he gets to chapter 4 and on, he gets very practical in nature. It's very specific about how the Christian life is intended to be lived out in practice, that, that wise, godly living, again. We go on to chapter 2, and, and Paul again in chapter 2 begins to rehearse the glories of who Christ is and what he's done for his people. And then in chapter 3, which is our text next week, he prays another prayer. My point is this. Before Paul ever focuses on the practical aspects of living the Christian life, he wants to make sure that their understanding is accurate and complete as to who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. And then he's motivated to pray that the Ephesians would truly understand those truths before he ever gets to his commands and ins- his instructions for Christian living. How about you and I? Uh, typically, uh, my experience is when I go to a conference or a seminar, I want to rush in. I want to take notes. I want all the things that I have to do. What's my to-do list to fix this area or to, to grow or to learn in this area? And I think we tend to have that approach to our Christian life. Just tell me the five things I need to do to be obedient or to be faithful to the Lord. But in Ephesians, Paul's not letting anybody get to that to-do list yet. He's saying, no, something more important is at stake here. You've got to truly comprehend who Christ is, and what he has already done on your behalf. And in essence, he's making an argument. You you don't need to look beyond the revelation of Scripture and what God's already done and promised for you to find some ability to, to strengthen your Christian life to a higher level of learning or a deeper knowledge. Look deeply and carefully in what you already know to be true. And his prayer, you'll see, is a prayer that asks the Spirit of God to do the work in our own hearts in, in aiding us in the comprehension. And when that's right, and when we're anchored in the truth of who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf, and we reflect on that deeply, our hearts will be transformed, and then we'll be prepared to act in obedience, to live a wise and godly life. And so that's what we see kind of playing out here in, in the book of Ephesians, it's, it's great doctrine and truth, but not just knowledge. Paul knows that's not enough just to know. He wants it to have its effect in our own hearts so that we have a, a greater sense and comprehension that it, that it infiltrates our entire way of thinking about life so that our natural outlook outflow is a life of obedience and living in accord with these great truths. And so we find here in this text, he begins there in verse 15 with giving a reason for this prayer. He says, for this reason, and he's pointing back to verses 3 through 14, because God's done all this on your behalf. He says, I too, and it's a reference here saying, I'm not the only one praying for you. But those of us who who know what God's done in your life, who love you, are praying for you as well. And we've heard of the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. And we've heard of your love for all the saints. I'll stop right there. When we talk about Paul's Paul's reason to pray, it's, it's, I've explained these truths to you. Now, I know that you love Christ. I know that you love God's people. I want you to excel still more. And I'm going to pray on your behalf. He says in verse 16, I'm going to do that without ceasing. 
Many times, Paul makes the statement to pray without ceasing. This, I think, is one of the greatest testimonies of Paul's genuine love for those in his life. It's convicting to me, too. To assess your love for those in your life with the degree that you pray for them. And if we really believe that God is the one who affects change through his word and his spirit, and if we love people, should we not be faithful, diligent, to pray without ceasing that God would accomplish what only he can do in their lives? And so that's the essence of of Paul's motivation here, his reason for praying. As we come to verse 17, we begin to see that he explains exactly what his request is. He looks, first of all, to the author of our faith and the one who is actually responsible for the work that he will do in our lives. And he says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, this is to whom he addresses his prayer. Now this is interesting, verse 17 here, where it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, is a a reference to the deity of Christ and to our Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a wonderful acknowledgement of the relationship between the Trinity, and we'll see in just a moment, the work of the Father, of the Son, and the Spirit. And so Paul has this very strong, clear understanding of the triune God and how all three parts or three persons of the Trinity work on our behalf. And so Paul directs his prayer to our Heavenly Father, but he does it in reference to Jesus Christ. He goes back, and if you look earlier in chapter in verse 3, as he begins to explain all that God has done for us, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of whom? our Lord Jesus Christ. It's he who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so Paul acknowledges that the plan of salvation and God's purposes in sanctification begin with him. He's the author of our faith. He's the one that desires more than any of us for us to walk in wisdom, to walk in obedience and purity and holiness. This is God's purpose for man. And his purpose for bringing the gospel that we might be reconciled and become followers of his son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul acknowledges this in his prayer. He says, God, you are the one who can only accomplish this. Let me just stop there for a moment. Do you ever feel powerless in your efforts to change people? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. And you keep asking yourself, what more could I do? If I could just say this right, if I could just confront them correctly, if I could just bring uh, this understanding to them, it's easy for us to rely a lot more on our own abilities and strength than to recognize that God desires those things more than we possibly ever could and to appeal to him. And so we can learn from Paul right here to have confidence in the power of God to produce change in his time, in his way, through his means. And you should find comfort in that. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Be faithful. Scriptures are clear as to what our responsibility is, to be faithful, to speak the truth, to do that in love, to be forbearing, to be loving, to, to, to minister to one another. But we shouldn't be pursuing those things without a clear confidence in the power of God for the results of all that. And Paul knows that. And so he directs his prayer to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's also important to note here that Paul was characterized by thanksgiving. We see that just as he comes to prayer. I don't know about you, but um, the other practical thing we can draw from this is I'm always asking God for more, even good things for more, and I rarely slow down enough to give him thanks for what he already has done. And sometimes this can come out in our relationships too. I was 
uh, years ago, I was working at the Masters University and we we're kicking off the, the year and I was meeting with all the student life staff and the resident directors and I was laying out my big vision for the year and here's all the things we wanted to uh, work towards and hopefully see God accomplish and all that. And one of the RDs came up to me afterwards and, and she just said to me, you know, I, I'm excited about what you're asking us to strive for this year. But what I'm not hearing is a recognition of what was accomplished last year and everything that we've worked hard for the last few years and, and what God had accomplished. And I was really thankful that that RD approached me in a loving way and confronted me because some of us might have that tendency. It's what's the next thing? There's always more. We live in a fallen world. There's enough needs right, and challenges to face that we can get caught up always looking at, God, change this, do this. But before Paul ever makes his request, he says, my, my prayers are characterized to the Father as prayers of thanksgiving for what he's done. So as you can tell, as I come to study this text, I'm convicted quite a bit uh, about aspects in my own life that I don't often slow down enough to give God credit and thanks for what he's already done. And he deserves that. And that becomes the launching pad then to make requests to the Father, which we'll see here. Two clear requests that we'll look at and then three aspects of practical change uh, that we'll see in the lives of the Ephesians, hopefully as a result of this prayer. Paul's first request is that there would be a, a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation leading to the true knowledge of him. This is what Paul's praying for. He goes on then to offer a second request. And it's a prayer that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. We'll take the first request. Paul prays that the Ephesians would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And when we see how God works in the lives of an individual, the word wisdom often is used both in the Old Testament and New Testament to talk about the truth of God's precepts, the truth about who God is, his character and nature as it's revealed in the context of human history. And that wisdom is accessible only to us as a result of the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Paul here is saying, I've just explained these great truths of doctrine. What are those truths? You go back earlier, you see that he points to the doctrine of election, just as God chose us in verse 4. In verse 5, he predestined us. Also in verse 5, he adopted us. Goes on to say in verse 7 that he redeemed us and then that he extended forgiveness to us for trespasses. In verse 8, that he made known to us the mystery of his will. Goes on to talk in verse 11 about this inheritance that we've obtained through Christ. He continues on talking about what God's going to accomplish by way of our, our sanctification and our glorification. In verse 13, he says that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. All these wonderful and great truths have been revealed to us through the scriptures. But what Paul's praying for here is not just that we would know those things, okay, but that we would have a spirit of wisdom. Now, the word spirit here is not directly a reference to the Holy Spirit. He's not praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit because they already have the Holy Spirit. We see that, right, in verse 13 and 14. He's been given to us as a seal of the promise, a pledge of our inheritance. And so the word here, spirit, is certainly recognizing the testimony of the Spirit and his work in our hearts and lives. But the word really could be understood as at this time in your life, a dispensation. Okay, This would be a time in your life where we, you would truly come to understand those great truths. And so he points to the word wisdom, but he goes on and illustrates this by using a second term here. That we would not only just know 
these great truths, but we would also have them revealed to us. It's a spirit of revelation. And he says, the work of the Spirit in your life in this season, in this time, will deepen your understanding so that you will be wise in the way you live, and it will deepen your understanding through revelation so that you will have a truer or fuller, complete knowledge of who Christ is. This is a qualitative aspect of knowing. It's a richer knowing. It's not new knowledge. It's not additional knowledge. What Paul's saying is, I want you to stop long enough to let the Spirit of God impress upon your mind, your heart, the significance of these truths. Think about it for a moment. What does it mean to be chosen by God? You sit and meditate on that, and you study that theme in Scripture. Well, it tells us, first of all, what? You and I did nothing to earn or merit God's loving choice of us. Matter of fact, he made that choice from eternity past before we even existed. What does that produce in your heart? A humility, first of all, it should. It should produce in your heart a a sense of wonder of of a sovereign God who reigns through all eternity, not just human history and time as known in this creation, but from all eternity. What a marvelous God who's eternal. I think you get my point. As you begin to meditate just on that one truth statement, what that produces in, in, in your understanding of who God is does deepen your wisdom and your knowledge. And a lot of times we just kind of do a flyby with Scripture. Boom, 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 boom. I know all the points of doctrine. But we don't slow down enough to really let them begin to seep into our lives and produce in us a completely different mindset, a different understanding, a different expectation and perspective on the Christian life. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, God, do this work in the Ephesians' lives. I don't want them to just check off the box. They read the first paragraph of my letter, got that. I want them to really benefit from the testimony of your spirit in their life to comprehend these wonderful truths. I'll give you a challenge. Maybe sometime this week or the next couple weeks, go back and and look at each of those acts of God on our behalf and try to do some meditation, some reflection. And as the Apostle Paul prays, ask the Spirit of God to help you really meditate on those truths. This is really what Harry's talking about a while back, talking about meditation. Let it have its full effect. This is that Psalm 1 picture, right, of the tree that's planted by the rivers of water whose do, roots go deeper, okay, and it feeds on the nutrients of truth. And so this idea is very consistent, that the Word of God with the Spirit of God will deepen our understanding. So Paul prays that we be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation, and we know that this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, particularly I can give you some examples. If you go to Luke chapter 2, at verse 26, we meet a man, Simeon, and listen to what we read there. It says, And it had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Who's the one that revealed truth to Simeon? It was the Holy Spirit. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, we read this. Paul writes, For to us God revealed Through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. He says later in Ephesians 3, verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, talking about the truth of the gospel, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. How? Through the Spirit. And so Paul's simply acknowledging here what we already know to be true from Scripture, that it's the Spirit who guides us in understanding these truths. Listen to what we read in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 13. Christ speaking, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Here's Christ himself affirming the work of the Spirit in bringing us understanding of the truth. The second request that Paul makes here is not just for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation leading to a truer knowledge. He says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. I'll stop there. Let's take a look at this request. Paul's saying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And what we find here is not so much a second request in nature. It's a second request uh, with regard to, to building upon his first request. Not just the spirit of wisdom and revelation, but I want you to accomplish that work in the heart that would lead to true enlightenment. Now, the word heart in our culture, when we think about heart, it usually is a reference uh, to us about the seat of emotions. Okay? So we think about our feelings. But in the ancient world, their understanding of the use of the term heart referred to uh, really the, the seat of the conscience and where man actually thought and did his deepest thinking. And so what Paul is saying here, he's making that reference to that ancient world understanding. He says that that in the deepest place of man's thinking, where the Ephesians really contemplate what is true and what is right, that you would enlighten them. What does the word enlightenment mean? Well, it's as simple as walking over to a light switch in a dark room and turning it on. What happens? It illuminates. And now you can see reality. When it was dark, you didn't know what was in the room. You didn't know who was in the room. You didn't know what you might encounter there. It was unknown. It was unknowable. And when the lights go on, it becomes known. And Paul's simply using the same idea that the work the Holy Spirit does in our lives to give us this this fuller and richer appreciation and depth of understanding, it's like turning the lights on spiritually. You go, ah, this is all of who God is. And this is all of what Christ has done for me. And I don't wander in darkness. Matter of fact, earlier in chapter one, he uses the phrase in verse nine, he made known to us the mystery of his will. The term mystery is talking about something that was previously unknown. Okay, and when you solve a mystery, what happens? You know the answer, you know the solution, okay? And that's what he's providing for us in chapter one is this is no longer a mystery. It's been revealed to you. And so he's referencing again these great truths that he's just laid out for us. We know this is the work of God as well. If we look at the Old Testament, we see in Psalm 119, verse 18, where the psalmist writes, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Is he asking for help to physically open his eyes so he can read the scrolls? No. He's speaking in spiritual terms. He's asking God to do a work in the inner man to open his eyes to, to truly behold the magnitude and the depth of these great truths. He says it this way in verse 27 of Psalm 119, make me understand the way of thy precepts so I will meditate on thy wonders. And then verse 33 and following says, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. And then in verse 73 of Psalm 119, he says, thy hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. Solomon writing the book of Proverbs, makes a similar observation. He says this, to know wisdom and instruction, this is verses one through six, chapter one, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, 
righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. And Solomon writes the book of Proverbs from a, a vantage point of age and experience, some of it very difficult and disappointing. He looks back on life, and here in the book of Proverbs, he wants the next generation, in this case he's writing as though to a son, here's what I want you to know and understand. Is the truth of God's precepts and his word that you might walk in a wise fashion. And so he talks about this idea of gaining a, a greater understanding of these truth principles. Paul builds on this theme uh, in his ministry. And matter of fact, we see it pointed to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to invite you to look at that text particularly this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want you to hear the flow of Paul's argument here. It begins with a prayer and then an exhortation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 2 actually. It says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds familiar in this regard. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, aw awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. He goes on to talk about some of the conflict and, and divisions that they had within their fellowship. What's Paul saying in this text here? He's acknowledging the same work of Christ, the same work of God in their life, but he's also acknowledging that God is going to reveal to them this truth in a deeper and fuller fashion. Go back with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul becomes more specific now, not just these two general requests with regard to uh, having the spirit of wisdom and revelation leading to a deeper knowledge, or that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, but he gives us three aspects of this richer and fuller appreciation for these truth principles. And let's look at them quickly this morning. The first is that they would know the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. The word calling is used several ways in scripture. The way it's being used here is talking uh, in terms of how theologians refer to God's general calling. That's the call of salvation that he extends to all men, okay? Theologians also refer to the gospel calling as an effectual calling as it takes effect in the hearts of those he's chosen and he's elected. And so what Paul's referring to this when he says his calling is he's saying this is the sure work of God in choosing you, calling you, appointing you, securing you. But notice, as he gives credit that this is the work of God, it's his calling upon us, it produces what? Hope. It produces hope. How could you not go back and read the first 15, 14 verses of Ephesians 1 and not have hope just swell up within you? <laughs> it's not just what he's done already, it's what he's going to do. <laughs> I'm called, I'm secure. And this is what God's going to accomplish in my life. We know this is the work of God. 
Listen to Paul in Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are what? Called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You ready for that? You ready for that day of future glorification? I don't know about you, but the older I get, I do long more for heaven. I do long more for the promise of glorification. That's exciting. And it should cause within us this practical aspect of hope that arises within us on a daily basis as we reflect deeply on this great truth. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9, He who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. It's not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We read in Hebrews 9, verse 15, And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal, eternal inheritance. In a similar way, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As Paul makes his request to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that at this time in their life, the Spirit of God would, would deepen their comprehension and enlighten their understanding of these great truths, he knows that it's going to produce a hope. Not despair. Listen, if you just focus on what's going on in this world, I assure you, I can hardly watch the evening news, okay? And we all know the script is the same every single night. Whereas the tragedy of a mass shooting, a natural disaster, murders, people being arrested for heinous crimes, diplomacy that, that attempts to deal with, with long-standing, uh, sometimes centuries, if not millennia, uh, of battles and wars between different nations. The only response you can have by meditating on that is one of despair, unless you live daily in the light of this truth. Now, I may watch the evening news, and it, it should lead me to lives of those who are affected by all those terrible disasters. But for me, who's held secure as one who's called by God, I don't go to bed with anxiety or fear about tomorrow. I go to bed wondering, when's he coming? And when's that glorification going to become fully realized? And at least tomorrow, if he doesn't come, I have the hope that he's going to perfect me a little bit further in that journey of Christ-likeness. Well, not only does he mention the hope of his calling, he says that we should understand the glory of being his inheritance. Wow. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, it's interesting here because earlier, Paul very clearly says, verse 14, that, that we, as joint heirs with Christ, are going to benefit from all the inheritance that is going to be Christ extended to us. That's a, that's a marvelous thought right there. I, who was a sinner unworthy, was adopted by God, brought into his family, considered to be a joint heir with his beloved son. I'm an adopted son. And I get all the equal rights and privileges of being a son of God. Intimacy of relationship and fellowship with him. A loving dad who knows my needs before I can even express them. A father who protects me and cares for me and has my good in mind in all accounts. But it's not just this aspect of our inheritance through Christ. He actually says that we, we are Christ's inheritance. God is preparing us to be a gift offering to his son. 
you know, this world attempts to try to talk about self-esteem. <laughs> you and I don't need to have those conversations, okay? Our identity is one who's been secured as a treasured gift to Christ that God's redeemed and he's going to sanctify. He's going to clean us up, he's going to make us presentable and then he's going to offer us to his son. This is what Paul's talking about and, and, and we see this idea of being an inheritance as far as God's people are concerned in other places in scripture. Listen to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse 26. And I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy thy people, even thine inheritance, whom thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, whom thou hast brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Here, God's being honored for his redemption of the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. And the language that's used is saying, they're your inheritance. Or in Psalm 33, verse 12, we read, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. We get the same idea in Titus chapter two, verse 11 and following, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good, good deeds. This is the inheritance, not just the benefits that we receive, but then being prepared by God to be offered back to his son as those who will worship him for all eternity. And it is about worship, and that's why he uses the word the glory. The glory of his inheritance. That's the, the purpose of us being his inheritance, is that we will glorify him, we will worship him, we will honor him in who we are. The third aspect that Paul wants us to grow in depth and understanding is in the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. We, we focused on his calling and his inheritance, and now it's, his power, the greatness of his power. You want to talk about ultimate power. The one who can raise the dead to life has ultimate power. And this is Paul's reference. He's talking about the work of Christ on our behalf where he went to the cross. He died, he was buried, and what? Raised to new life. The one who has power over death to grant life has ultimate power. And what does Paul tell us in the book of Romans, chapter 6? That we who've come to faith in Christ, he's talking about the picture of baptism, we have been buried and raised to new life in Christ. You and I are the recipients of the, the greatest power that exists. A power of God to bring people from death to life. And so Paul's saying, as you meditate on these great truths, how can you not focus on how great God is? If he's resurrected you, just like he did his son, it's an amazing thought. And to kind of explain this further, Paul goes on, he just begins to go on and explain this amazing power. Read verse 19 and following. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the power of God displayed in Christ and demonstrated towards you and I. I want to encourage you this week. Don't just be committed to praying that God will fix people or fix things in your life. 
let us all learn from the testimony of Paul that we need to pray that God would take the truth that we know, okay? And as we study it, allow the Spirit of God to begin to impress on our thinking and our understanding and bring that depth of understanding that then produces what? Hope and faith that leads to obedience. And this is Paul's intention before he ever gets to the action items. He says, let your life deepen in its understanding, its recognition, its comprehension, its enlightening understanding of these truths. Not new truths, but the truths that have already been revealed to us. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, forgive us when we rush too quickly to prayer. When we come to you simply with a list of demands that would make our lives better or the lives of those that we love better. And instead, teach us to pray like Paul. That the great truths that we've been taught and that we're trying to share with others in our lives would be understood in such a a fuller and richer and more complete fashion that it would produce these very things that Paul describes for us, a reflection on all that is ours in Christ. And as a result, how could we not pursue holiness and righteousness and justice and love and, and truth? And so we would ask God that you would just like Paul prays for the Ephesians, grow us in our own understanding of wisdom and reveal to us these great truths as we reflect on your word. And we pray, God, that it would affect not only our prayers, but but our attitudes, our behaviors, our conversations with others, and that we might recognize that it is your great power at work in us to accomplish that which brings glory to Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.